So thank you, and uh, welcome. This is our closing panel. Uh, and in uh, the spirit of the Big South for Film event, we set it up so that there's editing, there's mixing, and there's technology. The idea being we can fit a lot of conversations into those three uh, sort of categories. And, and this year we decided, uh, rather than talk about plugins or workflow or anything like that, there's a real interesting trend going on with Atmos and Immersive. Uh, this event was founded on Immersive Sound back in 2014. And we just did a, uh, a an event in New York at Power Station for the music recording industry, which is just now really grabbing onto Immersive Sound, uh, different categories and everything. But we discovered along the way that you don't have to have a giant theater to do a good Atmos track. Uh, there are advantages to being in a room like this or the Cary Grant that we're going to be talking about. Uh, but we've really discovered over time that this sort of move to a mid-size, how do, how do I say it, a versatile mid-size, multi-purpose mix room. That was uh, us journalists love alliteration. And, um, and this has really been going on for, for a few years now in Hollywood and just being discovered in music. So I wanted to bring up a, a trio of four, I mean a four, <laughs> A quadro of uh, we have studio designers here right now with us. So we have Bruce Black, um, who, as if you followed Mix Online, he's did an eight-part series over the last few months on uh, building Paul Massey's mix room out in Ventura, uh, which is uh, you can go back and find it on Mix Online. And he's just coming off that recent project. He's done other rooms and such, but we're going to talk about some recent ones. We have Lane Birch here, uh, who uh, let's give Lane some applause because. Uh, they all deserve applause, but Lane, Lane is like my right hand starting two months, two months ago to get this all set up. And the Sony engineering team is uh, uh, par excellence. I mean, they're bar none. They, they, they take care of clients, but they also make sure this facility is at, at top of the world every day. Uh, and Lane is spent, uh, you, you probably saw that buyer room. I mean, some people were going in and seeing that. Well, that was uh, an existing room, but Lane sort of supervised the sort of the integration, the, the, the design, they tear back the walls and all that stuff. Um, it's the first non-JBL mix room in the facility. And then we have Tom Davis, who is representing, he came in here from Nashville. Uh, Tom, some of you may go back when Tom was here pre-1994, post-Logic, uh, a number of other things around town, broadcast aside, Tom came to me through Robbie Clyde right here. Uh, I found out that Tom out of Nashville mixed the Billy Joel live at Yankee Stadium in Atmos just recently. And we are going to be playing the clip from that tonight at our Sound Reel Showcase. Now, it's the first, we believe it's the first theatrical presentation of, of a concert film. It, it, we we, we, we're waiting to be corrected, corrected on that. But uh, Tom brings us an engineering. Tom has built studios. Tom has built post rooms back going to the 80s, correct? I mean, and certainly has been in a 5-1 world forever. Tom, <laughs> I'm going to laugh, set, thinking maybe I'll retire. Things has been good. And he got this Atmos project, built a new room in Nashville, and I think we got another 30 or 40 years. Right, Tom? There we go. Um, and then on the other end, we have uh, Peter Gerdison, who uh, Mix and I first came into contact with through Studio Baton uh, back in the, in the 90s and has built rooms, I mean, in music recording. Uh, we have, he has a beautiful book out that we have some uh, very nice homes and personal use facilities, certainly integrated into the architecture 
of, of homes and existing spaces. And if you got a chance to visit stage 12 and saw the contrast between 11 and 12 here, that's Peter's room, uh, the upgrade from the 50s. And it's, it's stunning. I hope you get a chance right after this, before the cocktails, to stop by and see these things. So thank you, gentlemen, for joining us. We have a different type of perspective. I want to uh, start the conversation by asking you, uh, let's go down the line, sort of your first exposure to immersive and then your first project. It's sort of, Bruce, let's start with you. Um, you've uh, been in and around LA, you've been in chief engineer back rooms, all kinds of things. What, what, what did you first hear in immersive playback and what was the first room you built? Uh, <laughs> the, my first experience with it was uh, through an AES uh, uh, field trip down to Orange County and I have to admit, I was not impressed. Uh, but I think things have changed a bit since then. It's hard to impress Bruce, by the way. Oh. Just so you know. Right. <laughs> Many have tried. I mean that, I mean that affectionately. No. I mean that affectionately. Yeah. Uh, uh, the first project was a small room in Silver Lake called Fancy Film. And uh, that, that was, uh, I think that was Atmos Home. It was a small room. Um, I had a lot of challenges on it because it was a historic building and uh, we couldn't uh, change very much and their budget was small, all the usual stuff. Um, another project was uh, done completely by remote control, a place called Full Mix in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Um, wow. And that's, uh, uh, that's completed. Uh, everything's working fine, no complaints. That and then the latest is, is the Paul Massey room in Ventura. And uh, there's, there's a few more little, little bits and pieces to clean up to, uh, to finish up the bottom end, but it's essentially a working room at this point. And in fact, Paul has done a, a little bit of work on, I think he did some fixes and cleanup on uh, the Indiana Jones film. Which he's now mixing over at Fox yeah, uh, this very why, day. Why yeah. he's not here? Yeah, today. Which is why he was out of the mixing belly. He got called in to do. I said, "Really, Indiana Jones? You can't come to my event." Um, yeah. <laughs> let's yeah. go who, down. Who do you care about uh, more? Uh, send Stephen away. Uh, yeah. Peter, uh, let's go to the other designer. Uh, your first exposure to an immersive room, and then the first room you built, if you might. Yeah. First of all, thanks for having me here. Yeah. This is great. Uh, Fantastic event. Um, yeah, it was kind of funny because in, uh, I think 2013, we got a, an email from someone at the NBC in the facilities department and they said something like, uh, you know, we want to redo the Hitchcock theater and hang 50 speakers from the ceiling. Can you come help us? <laughs> so, and then they said, um, we don't know what it is, but they call it Dolby Atmos. <laughs> I don't know what it is, but I like it. Yeah. <laughs> so since then, uh, the Hitchcock has been bulldozed and we have replaced it with a new Hitchcock, which is actually bigger and does have at least 50 speakers. But uh, that was the first uh, time we heard about it. So that didn't actually turn into a project. I think the first one we actually worked on was a remote control when they retrofitted uh, an old mix room this is Hans Zimmer's place. Hans Zimmer's yeah. place, yeah. An old mix room and a control room into Atmos. So we, we just simply hung some speakers there. And then uh, I think the first um, 
ground up real uh, Atmos rumors at levels, you know, levels in Hollywood, which I know we've been working on for many years. And then they added another room. And after that was built, we also went through some of the older rooms and retrofitted them there. What, what size are we talking at levels then? What size, uh, what actually, size of room roughly? Yeah, I wrote it down amazingly. <laughs> so right. that one was about than, smaller than this, bigger than a smaller, quite a bit smaller. smaller. Yeah, it's about twenty one by twenty five feet, yeah. so That's not huge. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, Lade, Lade, you've uh, were you here? I'm, I'm sorry, I should know the answer to this question. And they, you're not supposed to. Were you here when they had the holding that the first room back in two thousand fourteen? Uh, were you part of the staff then? Or? No, they they completed the holding in Novak a couple of years before I. A couple years before you joined. But your part, and I would like to address this, I mean, well, what was the first time you experienced it? And, uh, and then you've been a part of the integration of all the rooms here since, so. Yeah, the first time um, I was running operations over at the DAC, which is Digital Authoring Center. And we were authoring Blu-ray and DVD over there. And Tom McAndrew from Dolby came over. He used to be one of my audio engineers. And, he said, we want to take one of these small rooms and we want to add a bunch of speakers to it. And this is going to be a new home for format. So we looked at the room. It was very small, but he wanted to add, I don't know, eight speakers, 10 speakers and overhead. And we did it, but I said, nobody's ever going to do this. <laughs> Who's going to hang all these speakers in their house? You know, not knowing that theatrically was more the goal. I was wrong again because it's big in the house as well. But... Um, my first build actually was the Cary Grant, which, uh, wow. that's a small pretty, room. Yeah, it's pretty big. So <laughs> Tom Davis, uh, I, because Tom just, as I mentioned before, built his, uh, room in Nashville, uh, in order to complete this project and is now hooked. But Tom, let's go back the first time. What, what environment when you first heard it? Uh, where were you at? My, uh, my first experience was at uh, Westlake Pro in Nashville uh, in their demo room. Oh, okay. And it was, anybody want to guess? Rocket Man yeah. <laughs> that our pal Greg Penny did. And I thought I was sticky. I was like, okay, oh, cool. The slide guitar goes, woo. And, you know, I wasn't impressed. But what I've learned about this is most people are like that. They don't quite get it you, you have to warm up to it and then and and plus you know especially in music for most it's really the wild west right now there's it's all you can do anything you want so people are still figuring out what's cool and what's not um and i'm old enough to remember quad from the 70s on vinyl which lasted a minute and then in the mid 90s we went five one crazy and with super CDs and all that stuff, and that lasted a minute. So, five one in 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 uh, video, I've been doing for a long time. And, and for well, a lot of stuff we do is music for uh, television and 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 whatnot, and that's cool. So I said, okay, it's five one on steroids. Uh, it wasn't until I spent more time listening to stuff and on my iPhone with the binaural business, I started to go, okay, I'm. Kind of digging this, but one thing that every all well, one of my peers have mentioned <clears throat> about acclimating to Atmos, and I've heard these horror stories. Um, anyone who's not heard it as an artist, if an artist has not heard Atmos or, or familiar with it, you don't ever 
do a mix for them and let them hear their stuff first. <laughs> Have you heard I've this? Heard the same Everybody says that. The they go, no, play them something else. Play them some other, anything. So they go, okay, I kind of get it. Um, and, I've, and I've learned that lesson too. Because uh, then they get it. And then you play them their stuff because they're so used to hearing stereo. It's a different experience. It definitely is. So, yeah, so the Rocket Man was the thing. And, and it took me a year to kind of go, yeah, I don't know. But then but, you got picture and you got... Uh, and you have a stadium to mix to. I mean, you have, yeah, I mean, if ever there's an environment to emphasize the immersive field, it'd be like a crowded Yankee well, stadium. Well, that, and that's our thing because, you know, so much of what we do at Seismic Sound is is 95% of what we do is to picture. Uh, and uh, 5 1 was nice for that, for concert things and, and, and we do award shows and things like that. And, it, and it's okay. Um, it's a different deal to picture I think yeah. I think that's where it, it really shines yeah. and, and, and I think the Billy Joel thing is a good example of that yeah. it's we, have a, we also it's a little cheating we're not trying to be hard in the music industry I mean the, the film industry has a, a, a long a long legacy of listening and expecting right. a surround field right music does not so but right. uh, let's move on to this uh, and when we go back to the Holden Theater at the start of this mix event and then they go, they go as you heard Lane say here at Sony they go to the Holden to the Grand that's going, you know, large to larger. Um, but in the intervening years, when they built Theater 3 here, uh, which they called the Will Files Design Suite at that time, uh, it, this mid, mid-sized room started to ripple through town, If I'm, uh, uh, that I would argue. And people realized there are huge advantages to having volume. There are huge advantages to finishing in a room like this when you're working on a big picture. But we really have started to establish the midfield. So what is it in the midfield, Bruce? I mean, is it you hear detail and clarity? I mean, is it uh, what is it about that size room that works? Well, most of the rooms I've been doing are not large. I haven't done any rooms like of, of this size. So they've all been midsize and, and down. And uh, I don't think I'm really qualified to... Uh, to uh, say what the difference between a big room and a mid room is. Because, uh, I mean, I worked here for, for a little while, but I didn't really listen to anything in the rooms because I was busy fixing stuff. Yeah, yeah back in back. But, but um, I think uh, there are absolutely differences acoustically, and uh, it, it does come down to... Uh, where the the product is going to be played, if it's in a living room, um, that's that's one thing. If it's going to be played in a theater where you have the speakers recessed into the walls, you have a whole different acoustical situation. Well, there. let's talk about Paul's room then in particular because okay. he's going to be, uh, you know, he's at Fox right now mixing Indiana Jones, so he's doing yes. some things at home that translate up, yes. right to a larger larger stage. Yes. Um, that, that idea of translation is very crucial. And one of the big differences from 5-1, as I understand. I mean, could you talk about that? Going up to the, up to the theatrical and down to the home. Um, I, I think it's possible to, for it to translate all the way from top to bottom. Um, but it's, it's more of a mixer function yeah. to be able to make that happen. What, what my job with the room is is to make it as accurate as possible so that what you hear on your recorded medium is what plays back in other rooms. Yeah. Uh, translation is, is very important in, in 
a number of ways uh, in that when a when a uh, let's say a, an editor cuts something in a, in their room, when it goes to the stage and it sounds different, I've seen mixers erupt on that. Yeah. So, um, bring me bigger. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so accuracy. Does I criteria accuracy first and foremost? Is that for me accuracy? Accuracy, accuracy is 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 very important because it's a confidence issue. Yeah. Um, you want everybody down the line, whether they're going to hear it in bigger rooms or smaller rooms, you want them to hear exactly what, what is on the recorded medium. And uh, my part as an acoustician is to make the room as neutral as possible yeah, right. so that when it's played in another room, you don't hear the effects of, of, uh, the room. <laughs> of, of let's say, you've got a, a little ring off at, uh, in the room acoustically at 150 hertz. That's kind of getting at the bottom of the male voice range. So that can affect where that voice sits in the mix. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's important to, to make all of that region as flat as possible so that when the mixer mixes it, he can mix it according to his ear, uh, what he hears. And when it goes to wherever it goes to next, um, it's, it's gonna sound like he wants it to sound. Uh, Peter, could you, could you add to that, that uh, it, the design criteria is sort of, I mean, it's going to be very different for dialogue, perf I don't know, I mean, dialogue performance versus music and such. What are your primary de design criteria when you walk into an immersive field? Yeah, so basically I, I would agree with uh, everything Bruce said there. And so I think a lot of the actual up and down scaling is not really in our domain. You know, I think our job is to make the room as workable as possible as neutral as possible and not to have any problems and then once you have that you know there are differences of course because of the distances to the speakers yeah, and things like that and i think you mentioned also the amount of acoustic treatment so yeah let's talk I mean, you bring that in if you want because when you tame the room or you f fix the room you have measurement and you have treatment so what types of things have you learned along yeah. the way in terms of yeah, so it may not be necessarily a whole lot uh, difference in the actual material, but because the rooms are smaller, it's a larger percentage of the room that is being used up by, by that, you yeah. know, especially trapping. And uh, uh, I think our philosophy is mainly to keep it simple, you know, really not get too specific about things. What, so, what about the height speaker? I mean, does this cubic volume matter to you? Having a high ceiling, I mean, one thing I know that designers love is space. <laughs> and um, yeah. having that ceiling help, seems to help quite a bit if you have a decent one, right? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. That's a big point. And, you know, if you have a distance to your side speakers, for example, you want that to be fairly similar to your top speakers. And yeah. to have that, you need a pretty tall room. Not to say that in, in smaller rooms, you know, with lower ceilings, uh, you also get into issues where you need to not hit your head, you know. So it's actually it gets <laughs> down. Yeah. Not joking. Trucks, not joking. Yeah. It gets down to that. Yeah. yeah. But then, of course, the higher the better because you can almost not be too high, and you know there has to be a, a ratio that works. But it's it's good to have height. Tom, I, my experience in my whole career has been uh, you have to really consider the end product. Um, and uh, you have to lean one way or the other. And I've learned this in 5.1 television broadcast uh, in 5.1 and stereo because uh, what the, one of the differences with a room like this for a theatrical mix is 
number one is dynamic range. I mean, you're in a pristine environment with people in a dark room sitting to watch and listen to something. So your dynamic range is big. Television is not like that. So you're going to shrink all that. So you have to kind of think, okay, where is this going? What I thought was interesting in that last panel we had, uh, talking about the, the big rooms for theatrical, but they still lean towards or at least do another pass for streaming because yeah. that's really where stuff is going now. And they put it out in the theater for, what, yes. two weeks, but then it's going to live and forever. that's where this midfield rooms excels. That's yeah. where midroom excels, exactly. And, and I found that in, with the Atmos thing, we learned this really quickly. Um, the more air that's moving in the room, the more immersive it is. Atmos doesn't sound as good down low. I'm not saying rock and roll level, but it needs to be pretty loud. Yeah. And the treatment, I think it becomes more important because if you're in a room that's too, too dead, you start to lose, the, right? You start to lose the, God, the, yes. the, the, that immersion thing. You start to, oh, I hear that speaker, and I hear that speaker, and I hear that speaker, and that speaker. But when you've got a, just the right amount of reflection, it just fills the space. Yeah. And I think that's important. And I think that will translate for most different rooms. But there comes a point where you can't control every movie theaters are great because they're pretty pretty well tuned and consistent you can't control what people are going to have their house yeah so you make i i started mixing for me many years ago if i like it i'm good <laughs> yeah <laughs> late, late, it's, late, it's kind of true though right yeah, uh, you you have the luxury of uh but, but luxury of big rooms but also the difficulty of existing rooms i mean these aren't a lot of ground up destruction construction i mean luckily you were able to go go into the walls of the buyer room so how important is that volume to you, whether it's a small room or a big room? I mean. Well, you're right. It, there's really only one room that I got to rebuild from scratch, and that was 12. That was the 12. one that, yeah. that Peter just did for us. Yeah. Um, all these others were already built, and so we come in and we're just making enhancements and we're you know, bringing them current. And our primary focus here on my team is to make what you were saying before is translation. We want every stage to be as close to the other as possible. And that's because you may start a film here, but then you're gonna end up over on the Holden or you could be on the Grant. So we wanna make sure that whatever happens in this room seamlessly goes over to one of our other stages. And that includes the smaller ones like Theater One, Theater yeah. Three. So that's, uh, that's the way we build. We wanna make sure that they're as equal as possible. Um, the smaller rooms, uh, they have the benefit of, you know, not being as expensive as this room to use, but you can, the sound designers can use the room and they can mix in it. Uh, they can do pre-dubs, they can do temps. So they're very versatile rooms. That's the versatility part. Yeah. And Tom, I believe in your room, you're doing a whole bunch of type of different work. Uh, yeah, you know, the, the history of this is, um, you know, when I started this business, the, the um, recording studio for making records in a post audio room were completely different ball games. We used different gear, we had different setups. The rooms were laid out differently, uh, and the skill sets of the engineers were very different. That slowly changed over the years. We're all using the same stuff now. You know, we're all in a Pro Tools situation in the in the the, the S series consoles. Um, we all have the same technical tools, so. It's easier now to be a multi-purpose use room than it ever was 
because you don't have to have all the, you know, we all have plugins and stuff. It's all there now, right? I mean, we used to have a whole different set of outboard gear. And even the room layout, I mean, you could walk into a studio in the 80s and go, oh, this is a post room. How would you know that? Because there's no big glass window in the front. There's a monitor or a <laughs> screen, right? Yeah. Like this. Uh, what we built at Post Logic were, again, some of the first multi-purposes ones because we put the tracking room to the side. So we had a big glass window to the side looking out yeah. to a booth, right? And the screen was in the front. So we could do both. And it worked out really well. Yeah. So, yeah, um, I think that's important this day and age, especially with the economy and all that. You should be able to do a lot of stuff. So we can do indie movies, which we've done, uh, documentaries, uh, concert films like the Billy thing. And we do stuff for CMA and CMT, country music. Uh, and we do ADR. You know, a lot of actors live in Nashville now. So we have an ADR system going. Yeah with the beep tones and all that, you know, cause I learned to do that here in, in Hollywood. So I brought all that to Nashville. So, yeah. So I, I think that's important. If you're going to build a studio facility, you need yeah. to be able to do a little bit of all do of it. A little bit of everything. Right? Um, Just to, economically. But one thing that one of the common challenges, and this is music post, uh, going back to stereo quad everywhere is dealing with low end, uh, low end. And, um, it's, 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 a, it's a challenge. It's not insurmountable though. Correct. I mean, so let's start with you, Bruce. I mean, yeah. <laughs> Bruce said, I could go for two hours if you want, Tom. Yeah. Uh, but let's like, what, what is the challenge of low end in, okay. a, in say, a midfield group? Yeah. You could say the challenge is twofold. The first off is it's, it's uh, you could say it's an unstable region because you have very few uh, room resonances, the, the room modes. Uh, they're very dominant there, and there are very few of them. So the, uh, the response of the room is, is going to be uh, difficult to control because you have these large peaks of energy that are, are difficult to get rid of. So... Um, How do you get rid of it? Well, th there's, there's two, two thoughts on that. One of them is bass trapping. And a bass trap is a broadband, low-frequency absorber. And I, I, I don't like bass traps. Uh, yeah, I don't. He goes because if, if you look at a low-frequency response graph and apply a, a broadband bass trap to it, it takes that frequency response and turns the whole thing down. So in essence, you still have those those peaks and dips, but you've just turned it down. And uh, one of the rare problems that can come up with that is you trap it out so much that the bass is weak. So what do you do when the bass is weak? You turn it back up. Whereas uh, my chosen method is something called a, a, a Helmholtz resonator, which which targets which can be tuned to target the specific frequencies that are problematic. Um, to do that, you have to take measurements of the room so you know where the resonances are. Because you can try to calculate them, but uh, it won't always be accurate. There's always different things going on. So to control the low end, I, I uh, design in a series of... Uh, Helmholtz resonator, uh, Helmholtz resonators tuned to the offending frequencies, and um, how does that? I mean, 
I'm a lay person. How does that work? I mean, well, it just it's a, is it a tubular device, cylindrical? Is it? It's it has got to be one of the easiest devices to make. Uh, it's a square box with a hole in it, and you can make the box any size, any shape, and find a place. Uh, you can you can fit it to the available spaces in the room, and then the port, the hole, is cut is used to tune it to the particular frequency. So um, the net result of of uh, of using the Helmholtz uh, resonators is it flattens out the low frequency response without taking what you might call the good energy the energy, yeah. yeah. you reduce the peaks, leave everything else. Um, with a base trap, you're basically throwing the baby out with the bath water. And um, I've, I've experimented with this and used it on many rooms, and it's, it works really well. You have to be careful. You have to be concise. Uh, you have to make the measurements. But it works really well. And you can't, I don't think you can buy it at Sweetwater right now, can you? <laughs> well, the thing is, you, you, even if you could buy them at Sweetwater, the problem is you, you, you have to pick the frequency. And um, So, Bruce, you shoot the room then. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. To look for those problem spots and then yeah. the math yeah. designs the box. Yeah. And I've... Got gotcha. you. You know, on some rooms I've... Uh, I've I've tried calculating, mm -hmm. and it you know without being able to without having the opportunity to shoot the to room, shoot it, yeah. and that kind of gets you in the ballpark. You know, I'm kind of leaning on the, on the cue of the of the of the resonator to grab what I want it to grab, mm -hmm. but knowing that it's doing what I want it to do is real important to me. You know, it's. Uh, you're going very just dialing in very specifically. Very, very specifically. Specific. Uh, but yet you have, I'm sure there are rooms you've done that have trapping it, Peter. I mean, you when you have a client down in Malibu, a composer or something, uh, how are you dealing with low ed? I mean. Yeah, actually, this is maybe where we kind of take a little bit of a different approach. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, we yeah, don't. That's fine. We, we diverge. Don't, <laughs> we diverge, yeah, yeah, exactly. So we kind of look at, things like Helmholtz resonators or resonant absorbers and things like that is almost like the, the last thing to do if things don't work. So we would start out with some base trapping in most of the rooms. And I think, um, yeah, again, it goes kind of to the same philosophy of doing it uh, as simple as possible and as, a, uh, as low tech as possible, not you know, also for budget reasons a lot of times. Yeah. But one of the things we found, and we have done quite a few like Helmholtz resonators and other things like that, that are really tuned to a frequency. But, uh, you know, I don't know too much about the electronic aspects of these things. But when you, when you tune something or uh, when you equalize something, you know, stuff in other areas starts to move. And I think oh, the same yeah. happens in, in physical space, you know, so if you, if you do a, a Helmholtz resonator that's very narrow band, I think you, you have a danger that other things start moving. And you know, I'm sure you know very well how to do that. We probably don't, so that's why we don't do it. <laughs> but, uh, well, I've, I've found you know, in an electronic circuit, when you get a, a very high Q, uh, like uh, equalizer of some sort, you know, band pass, something like that, 
you run the risk of getting ringing on the on the uh, waveform on the the outer as you get ways from the center frequency the slope can ring some um, I've never seen that happen with a with a, a Helmholtz resonator a resonant uh, circuit if you will a physical resonant circuit um, I've I've just never can I can yeah. I ask how the uh, the broadband though the of the trapping is this all around the room ceiling borders everywhere I mean how do you do that yeah usually you can't do all around the ceiling is usually the easiest because yeah. you don't walk on it and it's up there and like for example in uh, stage twelve you know since we're right here you know there's basically just a, a hollow cavity up there with acoustic tile and that's around the speaker so it's fairly deep. Mm-hmm. And maybe one point to make, especially if you have a, a new room that's built from ground up, you know, I think once you start developing the floor plan and the heights and you, you really work on the proportions of that room. So when you do that, you can actually eliminate a lot of the repetitive peaks and valleys so you can kind of balance it out. And I think that really gets you very far. That's not always possible, of course. You know, if you have an existing room, you can't do that most of the time. So, Lee, let me add in here, because when you go to an existing room and you, the Lancaster was redone recently, um, do you find yourself suddenly have reshooting the room and having demand for different acoustic materials and such? How, did it change at all the signature of the room in a sense? On a few of the rooms, yes. Uh, this room, I feel when they initially designed it, they took care of all that. Yep. Um, so we didn't really have too many problems with this particular room. But that is one of the things that we chase the most is low frequency issues in all of our rooms. And it's one of the hardest to chase down. That's We'll bring Bruce in and try to... I think a lot of times what we'll do is maybe figure out a way to re- rebuild the room, restructure the room to get rid of that. Um, we have Jimmy Stewart 24 right now that's a similar issue that uh, Bruce looked at a few years ago for us, and that's the next one we want to tackle. But I think we're going to have to just kind of restructure the room, redo the walls and, and the, the Tom, ceiling. Tom, and putting together yours, I mean, did you have to you, you put an Atmos system? Uh, did you change? No, you we, got, we got lucky um, because the room that we built it in had already been, been I mean, there's no live bass trapping in this room. It's it's one of those odd rooms that, and a lot of us have probably seen those where it just kind of magically works, you know, and it always has for Motown, 20 years. Yeah, exactly, yeah. exactly. So we were pretty lucky. So when we did the Atmos thing and, you know, once Dolby tuned it up and, and time and everything, it sounded great. So we, were, we ran with it. But I have a question for you two guys. It, it just hit me. For all the years that we built recording studios and control rooms, it was going back into the 70s, maybe earlier was the whole live end, dead end, right? right? That was the thing. I guess that's still a thing for control I, rooms, I don't know anybody it does it. I use the concepts. The concepts, but that's not going to be the case in a room like this. I use it in every room. You do, but yeah. in a stage like this, you can't have a, it's not a live up here, is it? In dead in the back? Oh, or, or is it? It's dead. It's dead and here. Live. And live, it's, it's a reverse. Yeah. Yeah. And that still works? I mean, oh, obviously yeah. it does. But. Oh yeah, I don't hear it. I don't hear it as much of music anymore. I mean, I, I will say when I started at Mix, everything was a Hitley alive at Dead End room, right? Yeah, I mean, that, that was the thing. Chips Davis, Chips yeah. Davis, yeah, yeah, um, Westlake, yeah. And that was everywhere. Um, 
But that's it, not seem to be the case in music anymore. It doesn't seem they want a little more liveness, I think. Is that correct? Or? Yeah, I think you have to kind of take it with a grain of salt and maybe, you know, modify the concept. I don't yeah. think a, a straightforward, like one side is this, the other side is yeah. that, you know, yeah. works in any case because you do need some 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 amount of uh, randomness as well. When's know? the last yeah. time you put lava rock on the sides? <laughs> <laughs> like, uh, remember those? Yeah. It's been a while. Yeah, um, yeah 1970s. <laughs> We, we have about uh, eight minutes left. Michael, do we have a mic to ask questions? Uh, and do we have questions in the audience? You have some, some really talented folks here, so I'll hand off mine right now. We'll do the first one. You were here earlier. I think you got something to say for them. <laughs> Hi. I was wondering when you are talking about Helmholtz resonators and bass traps, do you tackle standing waves first and try to balance that out, or how, does, how do standing waves apply to your... The effect oh. of Helmholtz resonators. Um, part of it's it's part of my greater process. The first thing I do is is calculate the room modes, and and basically plot them on a frequency graph. And when I have the opportunity to change the dimensions of the room, I can change, I can change it to something that eventually gives me a smooth distribution of the resonances on the frequency domain. So the worst case uh, room I ever worked on was 20 by 20 by 20. All the, all the resonances in that room are going to pile up. As you kind of back off from that, you'll find you have resonances that still kind of pile up on certain frequencies. So it's an iterative process where you calculate the resonances and plot them, and if that doesn't work, you try another dimension, you plot those, and you just keep going through that process until the, uh, the resonances line up on the frequency domain as smoothly as possible within, you know, you don't want a, a 30 foot long room with a five foot wide, you know, that kind of stuff, within reason. Um, it will never be absolutely perfect, but if you go through that process, you, you pretty much handle the room resonances. And then from there, you can, you can uh, once the room is built, you can shoot the room and put the uh, resonators in at the frequencies that are showing up in the real world. But the room that you can't change the dimensions for, I'm just curious how the Helmholtz resonators affects standing waves. There's areas you're not going to hear the low end at all, areas where you're going to hear too much of it. Yeah, that's, that's where the art kind of comes into it. You, it's easy to measure what the frequency of, this, of, the, uh, of the resonances are, but then uh, you need to figure out where the peaks are going to be in the room. And you can, you can figure that out according to which dimension is creating the resonance and uh, which order of resonance, first order, second order, third order. And eventually you'll get to a point where um, it, it, takes care of, it takes care of all the, the resonances at that frequency. Um, the, another, another way to deal with that is to take your, build your resonators so that the the ports can fit as close to a tri-corner, two walls in the floor, 
or the ceiling if you want to do that. Mm-hmm. And that, that allows it to, to affect resonances on all three dimensions. With one. With, with one. one. With one. Awesome. But the power of the resonator is distributed, so you may... Interesting. Yeah. We have another question up here along the wall. Hi, thank you so much for being here and for sharing your wisdom. Um, I'm currently in the middle of a studio build right now at my house. It's a finished garage, 11 feet wide and 22 or 3 feet long. Um, just built a false wall in the front, and I'm, I am really excited about where I put the speakers because... I'm able to put a perf screen on on top of it and kind of create the you know ideal ergonomics of the whole thing. I'm a little terrified that my left and rights are way too close to the walls um, because they're I don't know maybe seven or eight feet apart from each other. Do you have any specific um, advice about speakers that are probably too close to the walls and how to Tree, I, I can tell, and I haven't shot the room yet. This, I'm right in the middle of it. Like I'm, I'm, I'm planning on doing all this stuff. I can tell already that my L and R are muddy, and that my C is going to be a lot clearer. I'm curious if I just did it wrong, or if you have any other. No, advice. no. You know, that's that's uh, another one of those great compromises. You need to to have the speakers far wide enough so that you get that that localization and the, the uh, panorama. But when you start getting closer to, to the sidewalls, you're getting hard reflections that mix with the direct sound that, that uh, depending upon what the delay is, can, can make it muddy. So a quick fix would be to put some, uh, put some absorption on the sidewalls at at the reflection point and you can kind of eyeball in where the reflection point would be um shoot the laser uh it 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 starts it it starts getting a little confusing because when when people shoot rooms they usually think of using a real-time analyzer and the problem with real-time analyzers is they only show you frequency response, which is basically showing you what the direct sound is. What you wanna see is what happens to that sound in time. Right. And, and when you can look at de- what's called decay curves, yeah. which is uh, in, my inst- in my favorite uh, uh, delineation is every 100 milliseconds, the changes in the response can be absolutely astounding. So, when you shoot a room, you really need to look look at it in three dimensions, uh, with the the frequency level and time. Peter, Peter, do you have anything to add to that? I mean, if you're too close to walls, because you have personal clients as well who might yeah. approve of aesthetics. It's, I mean, yeah. uh, what do you say when you're too close to walls? Yeah, I think exactly the same. You know, I think you need to avoid any reflections that then have a time delay to the direct signal. And so that w- that's what makes it muddy. So if you absorb those uh, areas that are between, say, your mix position and the speakers on the side, then that will eliminate that problem, I think, pretty easily. All right, quickly, Bruce, because we yeah. have one more question. Uh, we need one more question. We got to run. Okay. Any absorption you use, uh, based on my experience, should be at least two inches thick. 
Um, the problem is when you when you put one inch one inch absorption in in rooms, you find that you have a a knee in the absorption around one kilohertz, which means pretty much everything below that is not going to be abs absorbed. Right. So, right. Yeah, do, do you have any more questions? Yeah. We have time for one more. Going, going. Let's go have a cocktail. Oh, All right, wait, wait. Yeah. Bar. Hold on. Made it. Oh, made it. Right. <laughs> this guy is taking away your drinks. <laughs> Sorry, I don't. I don't mean to hold up everybody's cocktails. Um, I just quickly was interested in your thoughts on symmetry, especially with relation to like the home studio and the, the bedroom studio, because symmetry um, isn't always totally possible. You might have a closet or an entry door or something where you can't really put a when, triangular base trap. So I don't know. What what are what are your thoughts on approaches? To, dealing with small room symmetry? Try and be as symmetrical as you can. <laughs> when, you, when you're taking a room and you're doing a budget rework on it, it there's going to be tons and tons of compromises. So um, the, the problem with asymmetry is if you have like a stereo pair of speakers, the reflections from one speaker will speaker will reach the mixed position at a different time. Yeah, it's a big deal. Peter? Yeah, that's, I think, one of the last things to mess with. You know, it's one of those things, if you set it up right in the beginning, I think you're 90% there, and then yeah. everything else is Band-Aid. So one of the main things in a listening situation is symmetry. So if you have something on one side, you know, maybe you don't want to make the room smaller, but if you could duplicate it on the other side, or maybe tweak the rooms a little, change the angles, you know. There are ways geometrically, but I would greatly recommend to not mess with that. All right, there we go. I, uh, thank you. Thank you, Joe. Let's give it up. Uh, please, uh,